redemptive, that Christianity as I preached it and understood it was about transforming suffering into something that was glorious. How could it be otherwise when the major figure, Jesus the Christ, takes care of business, kind of saves the world through this suffering? And so Christians are trying to model this. So no matter how creative I tried to be in terms of my sermons, my prayers, my conversations, it was all based upon a model that really didn't value human life. Right? It didn't value what took place within the context of human history. It looked beyond human history and said, you may deal with a whole lot of shit here, but you're going to get heaven. That's not a good way to help people move through the world. It doesn't help them make any sense. Of no, it. no. And so I'm wrestling with this, and my idea of God, my idea of world, my idea of salvation is, is changing. I moved from an idea of a God who is all-powerful, who makes things happen, who breaks into human history, to a God who tries to operate based upon persuasion, what my grandmother would call that still small voice, right, that tries to urge us to do the right, right? I'm moving in this direction, trying to remain committed to Christian ministry, but thinking about ministry differently. So one of my models became Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., this New York minister who was really about transforming the socioeconomic and political conditions of life. And church ministry became a vehicle for doing that worldly work. That was making sense to me. So I was going to stay in Christian ministry. I decided that I couldn't, I couldn't go to seminary in New York because I needed to be away from folks so that I could really wrestle with questions. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I moved to Massachusetts to a school where ministry was really a secondary thought. It didn't matter much. And so I'm trying to work all this stuff out, but it reached a point where I had to make a decision. Was I about the Christian tradition, or was I about helping people make it in the world? And I decided helping people make it in the world was more important, so I left the church, told the minister I was working with that I would not be continuing that ministry, contacted my bishop, wrote to my bishop to surrender my ordination, and just left. Y'all, I got Dr. Anthony Penn on the show today. We gonna be going in this Profane faith. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey y'all, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Here we are, oh man, another week. Another day, another time. Welcome back. Um, yo, first and foremost, uh, I just want to welcome all my new subscribers to the podcast. Um, man, it's a trip to see, man. We're, you know, pushing a thousand or so now. And, you know, for some of you out there, you may be like, oh, man, that's that's nothing. I got 15,000. Well, on you. No, but seriously, I mean, I, you know, I started this thing and, you know, I took last summer. My summer was project was last last summer was to um, 
you know, figure out how all this stuff worked, right? Um, I've always been kind of techie just to begin with. Um, and last summer, I just dove back into music, my first love, and uh, looking at mixers, looking at mics, what what is you know um you know what are feeds what are you know how do you how do we how do we look at how do, how do i even deal with uh, you know with these aspects and and what is an rss feed what does that even stand for man i mean I, you know what i'm saying and so taking the time to do that and taking the time to learn more about that and to exercise the creative side of my mind was a great exercise and just to see the reaction, the response, um, people, the engagement uh, has really been a blessing. It's been warming to my heart. So thank you for those of you who are new or maybe you're just listening to this episode for the first time, um, trying to figure out what the heck is profane faith. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you haven't gone back and listened to episode 00, I'm going to recommend that you do that. That episode lays out kind of the premise and overview of this podcast. Um, and so I would just, you know, recommend you go back and do that because I think there's some good stuff laid out there. And along, you know, I talk about my own story as well and talk about how I, you know, came to God and all those wonderful things that, you know, we as the religious faith community like to talk about, right? <laughs> um, so nevertheless, uh, go back and check that out. And again, thank you. Just thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of this uh, profane faith family um I'm, I'm just excited i'm just excited um yo this week man i'm yo if you listening to this live and this you know this is the first time that childish gambino donald glover oh my gosh yo this uh this video took me back y'all this um i don't want to spoil anything i'm actually going to be putting out very soon this week uh, a special issue on analysis on the Childish Gambino um, uh, video because there's so much packed into that. It is phenomenal. I, I It took me back to the golden era of hip-hop uh, when videos meant something, when there was meaning, there were symbols. I mean, it's so heavily packed. Some of it's easy to see, some of it's not. There's so much going on. I mean, I've seen this video like 20 times already, and amazing this was the highlight for me of the week um and like i said i'm putting together a couple of different specials one i'm going to be analyzing the video i'm going to be analyzing uh just some of those the spots that i've noticed there's been already a lot of analysis already out there so i'm not sure if i'm going to be necessarily adding <laughs> to uh but you know it'll be my take and i know a lot of you have been asking about hey when is profane faith going to tackle this i'm going in i promise i'm going in i'm actually at the end of my semester right now so just in the middle of crappy undergrad papers and trying to get through that and get grades in um and then i'm also finishing up uh, like i said a special issue on james cone uh so expect some stuff we got some stuff coming the summer's coming the sun is out here in Chicago. It's a fun time, y'all. It's uh, I can't I can't complain because I get to get outside and work on my lawn. I finally got to aerate my lawn and it's nice and green and got the core aeration going on and all that good stuff. So, man, I tell you what, um, it is uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited about the summer. Excited about some of the guests. Excited about some of my traveling as well. Um, and like I said, that video just set it off. Uh, along with that, I found interesting too. If you noticed this last week, um, I hate to be bringing up current events because I know that kind of dates the podcast, but still, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta pull it out. I gotta pull it out because this week, 
it was interesting that I, you know, I was on my way into work and listening to NPR as I normally do. Um, and I, you know, I heard this, this, uh, the new cast say, Hey, you know, Donald Trump is going to be meeting with, uh, Sun Young, uh, or, um, Kim Jong-un from, um, you know, from North Korea and, you know, given the dates and everything, I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. But then this is the interesting part. They said, man, we were following him on Twitter and this is what he tweeted out. And like every other announcement that came across my device was telling me, you know, President Trump just tweeted this. President Trump, and, and, it, and it got me. As somebody who studies rhetoric, race, and religion, as somebody who studies the communication theory, it is fascinating, y'all, that we are in an age now where newscasters, professional newscasters, they're not getting this from a professional, uh, um, you know, a, a news briefing at the, you know, at the White House. They're not getting this from like some talk that he's given. They're waiting and hovering around this dude's Twitter account. Now, if that ain't, <laughs> if that ain't some crazy mess, I don't know what is, y'all, because that is man that's just crazy that's it's just crazy it's just crazy because uh man social media has transformed our lives and social media has also created uh the good the bad and the ugly um yes there's good to it i can connect with people i can talk with family members i can get in touch with people can get in touch with me uh, there's seemingly little distance, right, between um, those who are celebrities and those who are just like us, normal. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, but in that mix, that's just a fascinating little, 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 little subnote. That again, newscasters are now going to the Twitter feed, uh, and this president, for better or for worse, has created a space on Twitter for this political engagement. Um, and I'm all for undoing norms. I'm all for undoing standards that have put barriers um in in place for a lot of people at the same time i'm curious to know because this man is is not good <laughs> is is not doesn't do things you know for the betterment of society does things for the betterment of himself what is this going to mean moving forward right what is the future going to look like social media wise you know and all that good stuff you know in 10 years just 10 years even, even five years especially at the rate that we are you know developing new technology i mean i think about it like you know, stuff even from four or five years ago is old school. You know that. I mean, you know, you have a laptop from five years ago. That is old. Even if you have a cell phone from three years ago. I got I got an iPhone, y'all, and I bought my iPhone in the summer of 2015. Here in a few weeks, it is fixing to be three years old. And y'all, I can hear all, some of y'all already be like, dang, man, that's old. Heck, yeah, it's old. <laughs> and... But it works. <laughs> this is how I know I'm getting old, y'all. I'm, I, it works, you know. And, it, and so if it works, shoot, I, I, I'm doing it. I'm working. I'm going for comfort and and uh, functionality over style. Uh, well, I don't know, completely over style. I mean, you know, brother, guy still got to keep his bow ties and and shoes and everything, right? Um, but it's a phenomena right now, y'all. It's a phenomena, and um, I'm curious to see where we're gonna go uh, in the next uh, five years. Um, so it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Y'all, this week, I am so excited. I've been wanting to get this brother on the podcast for a long time. Uh, if you follow me, if you've been to a White Hodge podcast, you know that um, I actually have a whole, I have a little blog there. So those of you who are just new to this, whitehodgepodcast.com. Um, 
And I posted this uh, this little blog just uh, on another podcast that uh, featured Dr. Anthony Penn. Uh, Dr. Anthony Penn, if you don't know who he is, uh, he, uh, man, he received his Ph.D. from Harvard University in 94. Uh, other degrees include the B.A. from Columbia University and MDiv and M.A. both from Harvard and an honorary doctor degree from the Midville Lombard Theological School. Penn began his teaching career at McAllister College. I've spoken there a few times out in St. Paul, Minnesota, where his research interest in teaching earned him early tenure and promotion to full professor uh, within the first eight years of his career. First eight years. <laughs> first eight years. This brother is off the chains. I can't even n- number how many books he has. I, I, I know it's, it's uh, if it's not over 30, it's close to over 30. Um, he's authored a lot of books. If you've read any of my work, uh, you know, I've referenced him um, significantly uh, in, in, that, in those environments. And I have just really admired his scholarship. Now, that to say... Dr. Anthony Penn, this brother is out at Rice University and uh, out in uh, Houston, I believe. Houston, Texas, yes. And man, this guy is a humanist. Dang, dare say, atheist. And I think this is fascinating. And I, we talk about this in, our, in, 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 in the interview here coming up shortly. Um, but I've been wanting to have this conversation, particularly because I love the scholarship of Dr. Penn. I love how he pushes us to think as scholars, especially those of us who consider ourselves Christian. I also admire the way that he has supported a lot of us who have been in the academy. Let me tell you, when I went up for tenure, when I went up for promotion, Dr. Penn wrote letters for me of recommendation. I've worked with him on a couple of projects, right? I've seen him at AAR. We've connected. Man, this brother reached out. And see, this is what I admire about those. And this is what I admired about James Cone as well. These cats were not caught up with the titles and not caught up with the, you know, the, the madness. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's like they, they didn't believe the hype. And it, it's, it's refreshing to find people like that. I just reached out to him. I just say, look, man, I got to, you know, one of my, you know, the record, one of the things on the requirements is you got to get an outside, um, you know, professor of tenure or a professor, a scholar in your area, you know, who has tenure as a full professor. And you got to get, you know, those recommendations, right? Those of you who've been to the tenure process, you already know. And those of you who are getting ready to go through, get ready. <laughs> that, that happens. And he just, I reached out to him. He's like, sure, no problem. I'm like, wow, man. So I've appreciated his support. I've appreciated his uh, perspective. Um, and one of the things I really the reasons I wanted to be I wanted to have this conversation particularly is because I don't think we talk enough about the engagement of atheistic thought or even humanistic thought. I'll be honest with y'all, y'all. Um, profane faith was really developed in a sense of doubt um, and really questions regarding faith and God and understanding. I based that on several platforms. One, if the colonizers were wrong about just about everything else, what makes me believe that somehow the theology that I got from colonizers, whether it's through their seminaries, whether it's through their books, whether it's through their teachings, is going to be accurate? What are the chances of this theology of a Christian faith that we have come to know as just you know, fill in the blank, right? Evangelical, white, uh, conservative. What are the chances of that theology actually working out 100% to what we think it is? So I got questions around a lot of that stuff. 
um, I got questions around a lot of different aspects, right? The the Genesis story, you know? Because you ask yourself, I remember one time I asked uh, a pastor, uh, this is when I was uh, first in uh, youth work, and I was working at a church, and we were doing a Bible study, and um, one of the students asked me, say, look, man, you know, if there was nobody else on, on the planet, how did Adam and Eve have all these kids, you know? And I was like, oh, man, that's a good question. So I went and asked my pastor, I was like, pastor, I was like, you know, what, uh, I mean, you know, if they were the only people on earth, like, did eventually they have to, brother and sister, have to have sex? And you know what he told me? Uh, this is what he told me. He said, hey, you know, that's a good question, brother. Uh, and, you know, at the time, God allowed it. It was something that God had to allow so that the earth could become populated. And it didn't hit me till about like a month later. And I was like, uh, wh- why, what? <laughs> I don't know about y'all, man. Um, I Well, look, I'm an only child. I ain't got no brothers and sisters, but just the thought of having sex with a brother, a sister. What? So now, oh no, hell no. I mean, it's like this for me. I remember I used to have a crush on Maria from Sesame Street. Y'all remember her? (laughs) I used to have a crush on her until somebody said, man, you know what? Maria looks like your mom. That's it. That's it, (laughs) y'all. To this day, I'm still like, oh no, no, no. Maria's cool. She's cool. No, no, no. Somebody said she looked like my mom. So I can't even imagine trying to have sex with, with a family member. So just that story alone, just that alone, I'm like, I'm questioning, what is it? Are we, have we created, Emil Durkheim, right? Have we created a sense of religion to appease us, to, to give us some kind of answer? One of my hypotheses, and this is another podcast I'm trying to work on, I've got to gather some astronomers and some astrophysicists, so if you're either of those, hit me up. But one of my hypotheses is I've studied, because I love astronomy. I love um, uh, astrophysics, astrobiology. Um, I'm hooked on the Science Channel. I'm hooked, and one of my books I'm reading is on string theory, uh, relativity, uh, looking at the Kaiserskopf scale, Kaiserskopf scale. I know those of you scientists out there are probably killing me, but it's essentially the scale that measures, um, you know, advanced life and their technology. Like the first level is, you know, you can harness all of the energy of your planet and you know make it work for you the second level is you can inter- uh, harness all the energy uh of the of your host sun uh, and make that work for you and then the third level is you can harness all the energy of your solar or your galaxy Woo, man and i think about that in relationship to god what if god is still captive to the universe still captive to the laws of physics but it's just an advanced species right what if God is just somebody who just knew things much further than us? I mean, we're, we have discoveries out in Mars. There are monoliths on Mars. There are aspects of former um, civilizations on that planet. We're just starting to discover aspects of Venus. Um, you know, in 2015, 2016, they discovered uh, components that look like a, you know, something majorly big on the planet that's, that's above the atmosphere, so it's not on the surface. You know, I think there are other Genesis stories I think some of the moons on Jupiter uh, contain life. You know, and the further we look out, people thought Pluto was a dead planet. Well, they didn't even call it a dead planet, right? They called it a proto-planet. And, you know, and think about it. They get to Jupiter or they get to Pluto with the with the um, the satellite and they find out, whoa, there's a lot going on. Pluto's got some activity. It's not dead. There's water. There could be potential for life there. So in regards to that, when you think about the expanse of the universe, Think about how big things are. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me to even get my mind around our closest 
sun, right? Alpha Centauri. When you think about Alpha Centauri, five light years away. Now, one light year is what, as they say, about three trillion miles. You know, our solar system extends out about two light years totally. Now, that you, once you move beyond the outer planets and the Kuiper Belt and all that. I mean, think about just that distance, what it would take if we're using the traditional forms of travel. And to our knowledge, we haven't been able to go past the speed of light. We haven't been able to go, you know, and engage with that. To, to our knowledge, again, we haven't figured out the wormholes, even though Einstein predicted that they that they exist. And some scientists have already said that they will exist in a in a nanosecond, and they're like nano and micro uh, wormholes that open and close, um, you know, at any given time. So it 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 boggles the mind, right? I mean, think about this. What if God is just a an advanced species of humanoids. And I think about that. I mean, again, this is just hypothesizing. I get that. I know some of you Bible thumpers out there, you know, uh, probably think, oh my gosh. But if you can pass, get past the gag reflex of theology, right? Which is the, I can't believe that. No way. If you can get past the, if you can get past that, that section that says, no, let me not. I can't think this. I can't believe that. That's not the word of God. That's not the truth. And that's the thing that gets me. It's like so many people are wrapped up in quote unquote this truth. What the hell is that? Especially when we think about the amount of colonization. When especially when you then when you start to think about how Egypt was set up, how the pyramids, how these certain these structures that you know that connect with different parallels uh, and longitudinal coordinates, you know, on the planet, how those things were set up. Do we not believe that there are some aspects that we can't just explain and we've just got to be a mystery? And that's what I like about true science. True science is able to say, look, this is what we found out. Here are the facts for now until we are proven differently by another, right? By another outcome, by some more research. You know, we're just finding out now about what black holes may or may not be, you know, uh, neutron stars. Uh, uh, um, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, what a, a supernova. Supernova has the explosive power of 22 light years. That, I mean, we think about Andromeda and you got a supernova. This is all caught on, you know, they, this is all just on visual satellites. A supernova went off and it was brighter than, than the entire freaking galaxy. I mean, that's just phenomenal power. And think about it, if God is just even a type two Right. Just able to harness all the power of the sun, able to create a Dyson sphere around the sun. Woo, y'all, I'm telling y'all, this is the things that I think about. And so when I start to think about, OK, is there is there not a God? I mean, I don't know if I'm necessarily ready to go there. Um, I don't know if I'm necessarily ready to engage in a, you know, is there a non-God? I mean, I think that's I don't know. I mean, and this is kind of, this is part of what, you know, Anthony and I talk about. Dr. Penn and I talked about. We we get into that. What that, what does it mean? Like if you don't believe in a god, like what 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 next, right? There are a couple of articles I'm going to uh tap in here. One of them is from the New York Times published back in 2011. I read this uh called The Unbelievers uh by Emily Brennan. Uh, she talks about um just the, uh, the African Americans and, and she says, you know, in the two years since black atheists have grown uh to 879 members from that initial 100 YouTube confessionals have attracted thousands of blogs like Godless and Black. Okay. There's also the Black Nonbelievers Incorporated. Uh, they say walking by sight, not by faith. Huh? <laughs> That'll piss off a whole bunch of people right there. Uh-huh. Right? Walking by sight, not by faith. 
And I've talked with more folks who are involved with different uh, social and political movements um, and activism. And a lot of them say religion is just the oppressor. It's just another form of oppression. You got to free your mind, free your mind of these shackles. So, y'all, these are questions we got to wrestle with, <laughs> right? I, I do believe there there is a God. I believe there's a higher power. I don't think that the God that we have made God out to be is the accurate picture. I deliberately think things were left out. And I think that there might be more stuff out there, right? Yeah, there are some who believe that, you know, we've already been able to achieve uh, planetary interstellar uh, engagement, you know, because, yeah, think about it. I mean, think about this. Think about cell phone technology in the 1960s. Okay, think about what the Internet looked like at that time. Nothing about what we I mean, there's a prediction. There was a there's a, uh, a, a picture of a guy from the 19 like 1953 standing next to this big old computer. And the caption says, like, you know, uh, in the future, personal computers will be just be inhabitable. You won't be able to afford a personal computer computer unless the, unless you're very rich because it's going to be so big and just vastly expensive and personal computers will never be um, affordable and never be practical. Now think about that, 50s and 60s, okay? What happened to Apollo 18 and 19? They were paid for. Why didn't we go back to the moon? What did we find at the moon? There was a mission planned to Mars in the late 70s. All right, we've sent countless probes there. Why are we still thinking that we have to use rocket technology, right? to get places when the technology for our own internet and computers has advanced tremendously. I just got you telling you in five years, things are old, right? <laughs> so what makes you think, why are we still being shown rockets, space shuttles, right? After we went to the moon, it was just like, oh, we're just gonna do low earth orbits. Y'all, there's something more out there. I know, I know, I know. I'm sounding like a conspiracy theory and I know this is not the podcast for that, but I'm just telling y'all, there's some things out there. I'm not even getting into conspiracy theories. This is just stuff that are facts. These are just things that are out there. Look them up. Google them right now. You know, why didn't we finish Apollo, you know, the, the Apollo missions? You know, why do we continue to use rocket when we have technology out there? There are ion machines. There's the mathematics exist for a warp drive. <laughs> there are reports of anti-gravitational machines, you know, being seen around the world. So I'm just saying. Again, I know this is getting like X-Files type of stuff, but I'm, I'm putting it out there. And, that, and that's part of the problem, right? Is that you know, when you begin to have those conversations either about there's no God or conversations about, you know, the possibility that God is a technological genius, you begin to look begin to get looked at like right as a crazy person. <laughs> I don't know, y'all. I don't know. But I'm going to post these two links because I think it's important uh, to have these conversations. And this is now Dr. Penn and I don't necessarily get into, you know, God and technology, but we do talk about what does this look like uh, in an era of Trump. Right. We talk about this. Uh, Penn has made his initial remark on the Academy with his book, which I love. Why, Lord? Suffering and Evil in the Black Theology or in Black Theology. This was in 1995. Galvanizing Penn as an African-American humanist and solidifying African-American humanism as a historic or an historic non-theistic religious orientation for African-Americans. In this text, Penn finds that black theologians have no evidence to support the notion that God is working on behalf of the oppressed and any theological position that claims such is based on redemptive suffering theodicies that perpetuate African-American suffering. Woo-hoo! Y'all, we fixing to go in. <laughs> this is some good stuff. I know I took a little bit longer on this, uh, this introduction, but I think it's worth it. This is a strong conversation that we need to be having. We gotta be having this. So, without any further ado, Here's Dr. Penn and I 
having a great conversation. And don't forget, subscribe, Profane Faith. Uh, we're on iTunes, we're on Google, we're on Stitcher, and we got several uh, special issues coming out. Uh, and that Childish Gambino, This Is America review is coming. All right, here's the conversation. Dr. Penn, man, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show here, Profane Faith, brother. It's good to, good to have you on, finally. It's a delight to be with you. Man, sir. Well, um, for the audience uh, who may not know you and know, know who, you, uh, who you are and what you've done, uh, what's, uh, what's, your, what's, your, what's your background right now? What do you, uh, where, where are you at? What, what do you do? Uh, uh, what school are you at, sir? Okay. I'm on, on faculty at Rice University in Houston, Texas. I'm the Agnes Cullen Arnold Professor of Humanities, a professor of religion, and the founding director of the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning. Wow. Wow, 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 man. And what, uh, <laughs> well, I, have to, I do have to say, man, what number of book are you on, man? What, uh, what have you, you put out like 30 books right now, right? I don't know. I don't count. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's up man that's what's up i know i have uh used your work in plenty of my uh in my uh my own research and so uh uh it's an honor man you uh you definitely you you're legendary brother you're legendary man um no, you're very kind very kind <laughs> um can you just for a minute man what is what has brought you to this point in your own if you want to even call it a faith journey, spiritual journey, what has brought you to this point? What has brought you to this uh, to, to this time? Like what what got you started? What what brought you? I know you you know uh, you, you you're you consider yourself a humanist, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. Just for for folks to to know, like what's what's been your journey with that? Well, I, I started out in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I was an ordained minister in that denomination but uh, did not find that its activities and its theologies met real-world needs in a way that satisfied me. Okay. That tended to answer the questions folks weren't asking and critique and criticize for folk, folks for asking questions we were ill-equipped to answer. I, I just found it of limited value. Mm -hmm. And giving it some critical thought, thinking about it, for me, it wasn't simply the AME church or the black church writ large that was problematic. It was the way in which theism did not provide a way to address real world issues in a sustainable manner. Okay. And so to maintain my own integrity, I left theism. And as you mentioned, now consider myself a humanist. Okay. All right, man. And what, um, what was well, I mean? I'm, I'm I'm curious, but particularly, man, you know, because as, as folks are you know processing and thinking through, man, what was some of the the pushback? I mean, because I'm imagining there had to be some pushback from somebody somewhere along the line, being like, "Oh man, quote unquote, you're black side backsliding, or man, or the the sin, or the, I mean, how 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 was how did you negotiate that in your own personal identity and and and, and development, like you know, standing up and then just saying, "No, this is what I believe. This is what I this is what I stand for." It was a matter of integrity. Okay. That I, I didn't care whether people agreed with me or not. I, mm. I did not care what folks thought about it. It was a matter of integrity. And I was not going to be in the pulpit preaching what I did not believe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and man. So, you know, oddly enough, most of the resistance has not come from church folks. It's come from people within the academy. Oh, 
Oh man, tell tell me about interesting. That's that's fascinating. Well, and in, in what manner? In what manner would you say? Well, church folks tend to be either baffled or their gut response is pray for him and he'll come back. Okay. Within the academy, there have been questions concerning where I fit within the study of religion. Right? I'm I'm trained as a theologian, but so many find it difficult to understand me as a theologian because I don't believe what they believe, okay. right? The assumption being to do theology, you must believe. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think, and I think that's what, uh, I mean, I think that's, you challenged my own thinking to, 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 to look at religion in a different way. I mean, when I first started attending AAR and, um, in understanding that from a different perspective, that's fascinating that you say that. And so, so yes. And so how, and, and, and now where you're at, I mean, I'm imagining the encompassment of, of humanist thought and, and, um, and rigor and academic rigor. I mean, I'm assuming, I mean, AAR seems to be, you know, in encompassing of that, but I'm assuming there are other academic spaces that you have besides just that conference and, and whatnot. How has that been received? How has that been engaged, you know, over the last decade, let's say? Well, the attention to humanism within, let's say, uh, the study of African-American religion uh-huh. increased. It's gotten better over the decades from being ignored and questioned, right? When I first started doing this work, there was the assumption of many that black folks weren't humanists or atheists. Okay. This was imposition to an understanding now, okay, some black folks do move in that direction, right? So there's a reluctance, but yet a, a, a willful, uh, a willingness to recognize not all black folks are theists. So this is increased, but I, I live between worlds. So, so there's this academic study of religion, but I'm also involved with humanists and atheist organizations, community-based organizations. And here's the dilemma. Mm-hmm. Within, within the study of religion, there are questions concerning the utility of humanism. Within humanist and atheist circles, there's a, a deep suspicion concerning any conversation regarding religion. Interesting. Interesting. What's that? I mean, and what's the, what? What do you think that suspicion? I'd be curious just to know what some of that suspicion around that would be, if you could explain that a little bit. Well, within humanist and atheist circles, the the fallback position is everything that's wrong in the world is the result of theism, unreasonable beliefs. Okay. That we make much more progress in the world if we are reasonable and we are logical. Okay. Now, what humanists and atheists tend to forget is that disbelief, a non-religious posture is not a prophylactic against nonsense. So you can be humanist and racist. You can be humanist and sexist. You can be humanist and homophobic, right? So real rigorous work within humanist and atheist circles concerning, for example, racial justice, this is a marginal conversation. And, And so my effort within those circles is to get humanists to understand a couple of things. One, they have an obligation to do real work with respect to issues of justice and that they need a much more complex understanding of religion, Mm -hmm. that you cannot capture all religious postures in the world by saying religious folks are the problem. You can't explain a Denmark Vesey or Gabriel Pross or Nat Turner or Jarena Lee that way. (laughs) It's yeah. more 
down. But when humanists and atheists claim figures like Thomas Jefferson, for example, okay. they have introduced a problem into their circle. They have introduced the problem of sexual violence and racism. Yes. yes. So it's got to be dealt with. In religious circles, within the study of religion, part of my issue has been getting folks to think more broadly concerning the nature and meaning of religion. Mm -hmm. They're not confined that to traditions or doctrines, but to understand it very differently. And so some years back, my effort was to get folks to think about religion as a quest for complex subjectivity. Okay. Understand traditions, doctrines, and creeds as a historical manifestation of something much more fundamental. Hmm. More hmm. recently, I've shifted away from that and want to understand religion as a technology, as a strategy, as a way in which folks capture and analyze experience. Okay. Okay. What and what and, and what is what does that journey yield to you? What are, what are, where have you where have you landed on 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 some of that? Uh, you know, particularly the particularly the current socio political era that we find ourselves in. You know, when uh, you know the conversations ongoing with white evangelicalism, when the ongoing with you know uh, faith in the public space of social activism, white liberalism, neoliberalism. I mean, and where. Where uh, where do you find yourself, you know, in this current era? I'd be curious to hear, you know, where, what you're, what you're, what you're working through right right now. Well, some of those same issues continue for me. Okay. Uh, and so, based upon my own inclinations as a humanist and my my theoretical thinking on religion, cultural production becomes extremely important. That mm. cultural. Production contains the codes by which we have mapped out what it means to live individually and collectively. So I want to give a lot of attention to that. It seems to me on some level, and you mentioned white evangelicalism, it seems to me that white evangelicalism uses religion as a justification and a coding for bad behavior and bad thinking. Mm. Mm. And I say this in part... Um, Based on personal experience, I went to a rather conservative high school that was evangelical in nature and predominantly white. I was the first black student. Oh, and wow. within that context of personal engagement, it was clear to me that religious language, religious vision became a coding for racial disregard, poor thinking in terms of gender and sexuality. And it seems to me that has continued. Uh, I would argue that is one of the only ways white evangelicals can support the horrific thinking and behavior of a Donald Trump. <laughs> that is not, religion is just a coding. It's wow. a coding. Wow. I like, man, I like that, that the coding uh, with that. Now, how now, taking that into the African-American church context, um, how then have has the so Obrey Hendricks, uh, which um, you know we both know, um, you know talks, you know in in his in his book he talks a little bit. He goes in on black gospel music and just how that has um, 
you know, it's just turned into, you know, a show. It's turned into kind of more of this glamorous uh, thing rather than actually talking about some of the issues in that. I mean, I'd, l- I'd love to hear your thoughts just on, you know, where we stand as African-Americans, you know, within the African-American church. What does that look like? I know you've, you've, you've had plenty of great insight on it at different, you know, different conferences and stuff. But, uh, you know, where, where, where does the state of the church stand? You know, how does, a, how does the legacy of, say, perhaps— um, Thurman, you know, connect with this or or maybe not. I mean, I don't know. I mean, are we, you know, I think about a Ta-Nehisi Coates and, you know, and just his positioning on just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an atheist and this. And, and mm-hmm. I've read a couple of articles that said, look, as an African-American, I waited until my auntie or my grandmother passed to really come out, like coming out of the closet almost like, you know, and saying like, I'm yeah. an atheist and believe in this way. I don't know if that question <laughs> makes sense, but, I, but I'd love to hear your thoughts just on African-Americans and spirituality, atheism and humanism. A couple of things. One, we don't do ourselves a favor by romanticizing the black church past. Okay. If the black church ever existed without embedded problems. Mm. Right? So if we are truthful about the black church, we have to recognize it as an institution through language and behavior that has justified gender bias, homophobia, Poor thinking on issues of class. Yeah. And that if we think in terms of social justice, the only thing black churches have sort of kind of gotten right is the issue of race. But even race within these within these institutions has been truncated. Right. Mm. That that with this attention to racial justice has also been a toxic colorism. Oh, Oh, okay. so we haven't even gotten that right. So, so the idea that black churches have somehow been the bedrock of justice movement in black communities is warped thinking. Okay, okay. <laughs> right? and so, and it's tied to this sort of thinking. When, when Christians, for example, see problematic behavior on the part of folks who claim to be Christian. The gut response is, that's not Christian. That's not my Christian. Yes, it is. <laughs> the challenge is this, that Christianity, like other religious codes, is open to a variety of patterns of behavior. Okay. That is Christianity. Say you don't like how it's being practiced, but don't say it's not your Christianity. As soon as folks do that, they stifle our ability to critique. Mm. Mm. <laughs> that's deep. Right? They've wiped out the ability to critique because you said that's not Christianity. What is it? Yes. <laughs> As if there has ever been a point in human history mm-hmm. when religious traditions have gotten it right without problems. Okay. Yeah. And so my, my thinking is this, that when we're talking about public life, when we're talking about our democratic vision on a grand scale, churches and other religious organizations should not be shepherding that vision. That theological Mm. thinking and theological language is too small to shape public space. That these theological visions are still premised upon insider and outsider. Okay. And I don't know how you come up with a viable democratic experience 
when undergirding one's thought is the shadow of an insider-outsider dynamic. We need a vocabulary or a grammar for collective life, a pattern of behaviors for public life that are not limited to the vision of any religious tradition. Yeah. Yeah. That, and from my vantage point, people get the separation of church and state wrong. Okay. Talk Do to what me. you want privately. Do what you want privately. I'm a humanist, but I have no objection with folks doing their thing on Sunday, Saturday, or Friday. Do your thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but your thing doesn't determine public life. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's not going to interfere with your private practice, mm-hmm. but you don't need to bring that private practice into public life. Yes. Okay. Separation of church and state. I'm all for that. Let folks do what they want to do on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. I'm I'm cool with that. Mm-hmm. But we need a way of harnessing our energy and thinking about collective public life beyond the confines of any religious tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, and so, I mean, so, so navigating some of those things, I mean, how, I mean, so when you say, okay, man, you had a separation of church and state, I mean, I'd be curious just how you engage, particularly with your own, you know, uh, you know, ethnic background and as an African-American, I mean, um, what then does that mean? Let's, let's look at, let's talk a little bit then about, I mean, because some of the conversations now it's about, you know, in times and uh, uh you know this is you know we're what we're heading into with you know with a with a with a, an administration like trump um i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on just some of the some of the conversations around that and and also just you know where what is the humanist perspective on like where we're at and then in terms you know and then and then ultimately what what does quote unquote the afterlife then look like in the, in that in that perspective particularly for some of the folks maybe listening who are not even familiar with you know humanism maybe they because I, yeah. I know some you know some of the folks in circles that i go around i mean your humanism i mean that's next to oh man that person's that's the devil <laughs> that's that's all oh, that's that's you fall off and that's it that's yeah. the, it's a flat earth you fall off that's it you're dead if that makes yeah. sense you know so so humanism is about the development of of moral and ethical outlooks without reliance on supernatural or trans-historical claims. It's about what we do within the context of human history. Mm -hmm. It puts accountability and responsibility squarely on the shoulders of people. No divine divine assistance, it's just us. (laughs) And so my attitude is humanists and atheists tend to be too optimistic, too certain of the inevitability of human progress, right? So they draw heavily on the optimism of the Enlightenment without firmly recognizing the downside of the Enlightenment. Okay, okay, okay. And and so my thinking tends to be more along the lines of the thinker Albert Camus. Okay. Camus and also W.E.B. Du Bois. Okay. cannot be certain of outcomes. Hmm. Human history should teach us that we cannot be certain of outcomes. But what we can be certain of is our ability to do what we can to promote the moral and vision, uh, moral and ethical vision we think appropriate for private and personal and, and public life. 
right? That what we can do is what we can do. Okay. And exercising human accountability and responsibility. We cannot be sure of outcomes, but we know we have the ability to say no to disregard. Hmm. Yeah. And so the struggle is perpetual. It's ongoing, not outcome driven, ongoing. Man, man. So an ongoing. So and as to this outcome, I'd be curious, like some of these outcomes, are you referring to basically like, OK, quote unquote, salvation, um, you know, church attendance? How would can you define a little bit about what you mean by like outcomes, you know, by oh. by? Yeah. Outcomes, I mean, we shall overcome someday. Okay. We don't know about that. <laughs> That the way in which injustice works, the genius of injustice is its ability to mutate, to shift, to alter the discourse so that we have the illusion of progress without the substance of change. Oh. Right? So we don't know that will happen. So the civil rights movement exposed a certain type of nastiness within the United States that wasn't new. Right. Yeah. But it didn't end the problem. Yeah. The economic condition of black folks in 2018 is horrific. Yeah. Social and cultural disregard for blackness still persistent. Mm -hmm. Right. So rather than be, being motivated by outcomes, we ought to be motivated by the human's ability to do just push against injustice, push against injustice, not because we know our efforts will ultimately be successful, but because it's what we can do. Hmm. Hmm. Man. It, man. Well, I mean, you, that's a, that's an interesting point that you bring up, I mean, in regards to, you know, the we shall overcome, because, I mean, you hear that a lot, right? You hear that, like, you know, through faith, we'll do this, we'll through prayer, we're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to overcome this particular evil, whatever the evil may be. Um, but you hear that on both sides. Right. I mean, so you see on conservative side, you hear this evil of liberalism and uh, this, um, you know, this in world type of thought. You know, on the liberal side, you were going to overcome conservatism. And so is it that is it that the binary is that, you know, that we're just too confused? I mean, what is that? How does it stop somebody on the left demonizing and almost turning into a leftist fundamentalist, uh, you know, to as opposed to a conservative that's already saying, OK, no, I'm against gay marriage. I I'm, I don't you know, I, I don't believe in uh, the, the you know, we should have. The church and state should be, you know, closer together. I mean, what um, is the problem? The binary is the problem that we're too wrapped up, maybe on the left, that we shall overcome this whatever ground. Because I, because here's the thing: I think I have. I mean, I've been having problems too with just the the understanding of the civil rights generation um, in their their quest for justice, but. What does that mean if we're still doing marches in 2018, and have we achieved some of the same? What is what is the end goal? I guess I'm I guess I'm asking myself, and 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 is the is the same methodology applied in 2018 that we could apply to 1966 um, or 1968 for that matter? Um, yeah. I don't know if that's making sense. I'm kind of just yeah. rambling, but I, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on on some hey, of that. Here's the thing for me. Yeah. Rather than goals, rather than privileging goals, I want to privilege process. Okay. There's something liberating and the very struggle against injustice, uh -huh. regardless of what it does or does not achieve. There is something freeing, something liberating 
in our persistent no to injustice. And keep in mind, injustice is web-like in nature. With our push for more well-being, we expose new ways in which we do harm. And those have to be tackled, right? Part of the problem from my vantage point, and we'll, we'll take Christians, for example, yeah. is the assumption, the assumption of privilege. That mm. is to say, I don't know very many Christians who read the biblical story and don't assume they are favored. They are the children of Israel in that story. Yeah. When if you look at the condition of black people in the United States, it seems just as reasonable to argue black folks are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Moabites. Mm. God done favor, right? And it seems to me we cannot have proper and mature and sustainable moral and ethical outlooks and postures towards the world if we don't also wrestle with the possibility that we are not the favored ones. Mm. <laughs> that requires a different approach to the world, right? What does it mean to demand change, demand justice, if you are not the favored population? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you say about a loving, kind, just, and compassionate God if you are not the favored population? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's a different spin on the problem of evil, but it seems to me until theists are willing to wrestle with both scenarios, favored and those without favor, you can't come up with a, a reasonable strategy towards moral evil, collective suffering. Yeah. And so we come to someone like Trump and we're baffled and confused. Why? <laughs> what he's doing is nothing new. Yeah. He yeah. just does it without the without sophistication and nuance. But a deep disregard for difference is nothing new within the United States. It stems back to the colonies, right? A deep disregard for difference. We just have new technologies that allow the United States to now trample difference in cleaner ways. And so we're taken aback when old strategies, right, kind of bulky violence against difference becomes mm -hmm. the mechanism. We're taken aback, but this has been the strategy. And the question becomes for us, how do we continue to struggle against, to name this sort of injustice and struggle against it? And again, I would argue the best posture towards the world is one that privileges our process of protest over against outcomes and goals. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you talk about what that, that when you talk about the best posture, like what, what then does that look like? Are there, are there, are there quote unquote solutions, right? I mean, cause you, I mean, I can hear, I can hear somebody in my, in my left ear right now being like, yeah, but then what is the, what is the solution? What is the, what are you, what do you, what do you do with this? I mean, how do you, how do you move forward? And what is the, you know, cause I mean, that's, that's deep what you said about looking at it. You know, what do you, how do you demand justice when you're not the favored, um, uh, you know, right. favored group? That demand. And so again, I would push against anything that is outcome driven. Yeah. And rather than that, push for process, 
for creative modes of struggle. And I'd say that because the way in which I think we have to wrestle with injustice is by negation. We know healthy living, healthy being for all cannot involve racism, can involve sexism, can involve homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. So we know what healthy life, we know what a productive public arena can't look like. Yeah. And so struggle against those things we know cannot be in the best interest of the whole. Okay. Okay. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Man, and I'm <laughs> and uh, I'm wondering and just, you know, particularly with how quote unquote the the justice movement has become so popularized. I mean, I've seen it just become very commodified over the last I would even say even the last five, six years, uh, particularly in white evangelical circles. Um, and, you know, and for that matter, beyond white evangelicalism, just in, in Christianity in general, I mean, um, you know, it's it's become a product. And so you, now you have, you know, different books about, oh, man, you know, if you just do this or if you just do that and so um i think you know so you know i have a text coming out this uh this this summer but one of the things that i fought with not necessarily my immediate public or my editor but you know just the publisher in general was it was there there are no i stated at the beginning there are no this is not a book that tells you how to blue boom 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 this is like we're we're water i want to wrestle i wanted the reader to wrestle with the mess, the shit that we're sitting in right now. And so rather than trying to explain it away and being like, hey, if we just get rid of this and then this, and that, you know, that produced a lot of dissonance just, just in the publisher alone. I guess my editor uh, was, was cool with it. He was like, nah, man, let's, let's roll with it. But, you know, and, and obviously he made the final case with the publisher, but they were, they were struggling with like, well, well what's the end outcome of this? What's the, you know, we're just talking about. So I, I'd be curious to know, like, you know, because the sexiness, I think of a, a grand outcome, right? Oh, we in racism, all oh, we in sexism, all oh, we, we have, um, well, I mean, part of it, I think, you know, what, what white liberals have done with Obama, for example, you know, they, they have turned him into a, like, almost a neo-god of, you know, his eight years was just, I mean, white liberals love Obama right now, right? And I, I didn't necessarily see that type of support during his eight years of presidency, uh, but I'd be curious to see, hey, your thoughts on just the Obama legacy uh, and what that what that looks like. And then B, um, sitting with some of that dissonance and, that, and, and, and not the sexiness of, you know, what we hear at some of these more, you know, not necessarily AAR, but just other other Christian conferences where they're talking about, OK, we shall overcome. And it's like this grand, sexy thing of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, of course, the, the Obama years that there are there are benefits to that presidency and their drawbacks. Let me let me highlight what I think are a couple of the benefits. Okay. One, theist and non-theist, Christians and atheists claimed Obama as one of their own. <laughs> yeah. Right. So many of the atheist gatherings I went to, folks claimed Obama. Christians claimed Obama, which means Obama had a way of talking about the collective good that cut across narrow theological or philosophical positionings. Okay. Folks from diametrically opposed life orientations could claim his vision. That's a plus. Yeah. 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 To get folks who are diametrically opposed 
to share a particular vocabulary and grammar of collective life is a plus. It also seems to me the presidency of Obama pointed out the illogical and irrational nature of racial disregard, Hmm. that folks were willing, folks were willing to harm their own well-being, their own political longevity in order to say no to Obama. Tells us something about the nature of racial disregard. Okay, okay. And if we have one, a vocabulary and a grammar that can be shared across competing life philosophies, mm-hmm. and we have a better sense of how illogical and irrational disregard is, we have some tools necessary for tackling our world as it's presented to us. Yes. Yes. Now, downside with Obama is some of the policies that disregarded life beyond the shores of the United States remained intact. A whole lot of folks died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and because Obama was placed within a system that was preserved, right? The nature of political life in the United States didn't change when Obama became president. He was president within a particular system. Yeah. And that system preserved itself. Yeah. Yeah. He participated in it because even Obama in maintaining himself had to think about what is acceptable in order to get another four years. Yeah. Yeah. The system didn't change. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it demonstrated the degree to which the United States white supremacy and the status quo within the United States are able to shift and change to give just enough while preserving their underlying integrity. A black president without a fundamental change to how we understand difference. Okay. Man. And I think so much about Trump and the appeal of Trump stems back to a deep disregard for what Obama represented. Yeah. yeah. I'm not convinced all of the folks who voted for Trump love Trump as much as they disliked Obama. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I and, and I mean, just, you know, and, and all the racial dynamics that go into, I mean, you know, Kelly Brown Douglas, you know, says, you know, it's like, you know, he was in... He sat in a space in the White House that was reserved for, you know, traditionally white men. I mean, and so that mm-hmm. dis- disruption of of white supremacy, you know, for eight years. Um, but you're right. I mean, I don't. And I mean, I'm assuming you weren't surprised when uh, Trump was was elected uh, was elected president. Oh, sure. And, and in part because I, like most folks in the United States, assume that one there were some respected rules to political engagement. Yeah. And that too, the nature of racism in the United States was not that rabid in nature. Yeah, okay. That people would ultimately value their own well-being. Yes. I did not anticipate that folks in such large numbers would vote against their own well-being. 
<laughs> in order to make a statement about difference. Okay. Okay. That shocked me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting now just to hear some of the the justifications that are coming, particularly with this whole thing with Stormy Daniels, uh, you know, quote unquote, the porn star. Um, and I mean, I, I can't even imagine, um, you know, Obama having anything even closely related to that, um, let alone, you know, some kind of scandal like this and just the justification on, you know, on the side of, you know, particularly white conservative Christians and just and and the ongoing um, really male supremacy, you know, patriarchal, you know, engagement with Trump and just other pastors as well. I mean, and now you're, you know, you're starting to hear stories, you know, even from Willow Creek here in Chicago, you know, about, you know, highballs and stuff. And whether it's true or not, I think uh, it's interesting just to see this this double, this other parallel, this other parallel narrative going along with, uh, you know, particularly engagement with women uh, and, and women's rights. It's uh, interesting, though. It tells us something about the nature of theology and doctrine. Yes. Yes. Right. That these are fluid and flexible. Yes. That they can easily be recoded and rethought to support any position no matter how toxic that position. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's a good way. That's an excellent way of, of, of putting it. Um, man, <laughs> man, last point here, um, uh, as, as I'm looking at time and everything, man, but uh, you put out one of the uh, first books, one of the first readers, I would say, on, on hip-hop and theology, Noise and Spirit. Um, that book was, uh, was a really good reader. Um, place some good things in context. I know a lot of us, you know, looking at hip hop and and uh, religious pursuits have have used that. Um, where do you see hip hop culture in, involved in in this engagement, or or do you? I mean, I know you've had you uh, co-edited a book with uh, Big Pun, uh, and is he still teaching over at Rice with you? Yes, yes. All right. Yeah, he, won't, he he won't teach uh, this coming fall, but. He, he will continue to be my co-teacher with this religion and hip-hop class. But first, let me thank you for all of your great work related to religion and hip-hop. You've done some outstanding stuff, and I just want oh. to acknowledge that. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I would say lot. in terms of my own work on um, religion and hip-hop, you know, I owe a great deal to folks like um, Angela Nelson and um, um, Dyson. Yeah. Well, who were publishing early in the um, uh, journal Theomusicology yes. on religion and hip-hop. Right? Yes. They, they provided a way forward for us. But my attitude is hip-hop culture is one of the most significant cultural de developments of the 20th century. Hmm. And it's not to give it serious attention both inside and outside of the academy is to miss a profound opportunity okay yes it tells yes. us a great deal yes this thing that was supposed to be a fad that was supposed to go away is now international its influence on culture is international and deep yes and we ought to be giving it some attention uh, <laughs> Right, and it's it's complex. It's extremely complex. You've got elements of hip hop that uncritically buy into the American dream scenario. Right, right. And you've got genres of hip hop that are deeply cr 
critical of the U.S. empire. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there's a complexity, a nuance that has to be appreciated. And, and so one of the things that has been important for me to, to uh, be mindful of and to critique is the assumption that everything wrong about U.S. culture can be addressed through a critique of hip-hop, as if hip-hop artists don't labor in the gardens we have provided. <laughs> yeah. Hip-hop is deeply American. Yeah. yeah. They didn't create this system. They struggle within the context of this system, using the outlets that have been made available. But there is a rich vocabulary and grammar, a rich understanding of life within this uh, within this culture. I'm particularly intrigued by what I would see as the moralist or existentialist dimensions of hip hop. Mm -hmm. uh, figures like uh, Scarface. Yeah. Or more recently, I would argue, in Kendrick Lamar. But they provided an kind of intriguing way of wrestling with the fundamental questions of life. Who are we? What are we? Why are we? When are we? In a way that doesn't deny the trauma, the suffering of life. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would argue that these sorts of thinkers are true to the kind of posture towards life in the United States we get with W.E.B. Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's deeply aware of the trauma of existence. Wow, well, that's and, and yes, no, I would definitely agree with that, man. I mean, I mean, I um, I read one of your tweets once about uh, Brother Chance, you know, Chance the rapper and everything. You said, mm -hmm. man, you know, I like, you know, I like his, you know, as an artist, but you like his theology is. I don't, I don't agree with his theology. I mean, I'd be curious to see how, you know, particularly with Chance, as, as much as he's doing, I mean, he's doing great things here in the city of Chicago, yeah. man. He's, you know, he's he's engaged. He's about about it, as they would Without say. Without a doubt. You know, saying um, theologically, I'd be curious to hear just what you're, where you know, where, where you, you know, where you're at with just, you know, where, where you're at with him in in general. I mean, Kendrick is one thing, but I mean, Chance is a bit more. I think he leans a little bit more more to the traditional, um, you know, musings of of the African American church tradition. Yeah, for me, his theology isn't critical enough. Okay. Yeah. Right. That it's from from my perspective, it's unwilling to give a sustained look at the tragic nature of collective black life. Okay. Right? It doesn't linger over the tragic dimensions of black life. Yeah. And so for me, it falls short. I'm much more interested in theological and philosophical positions on the part of hip-hop artists that linger over the tragic nature of, of collective life. Yeah. And so in Kendrick Lamar's Dam, it seems to me, from beginning to end, is a deep recognition of the tragic. Yes. And the question becomes, what do we do to sustain ourselves within, with, within a context marked by deep tragedy and disregard? How do we sustain ourselves within a context that is already and always shadowed by death. Yeah. 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 Man. 
Um, it, yes, <laughs> I'm just, I'm sitting here thinking about that. I mean, I think about Kendrick and how, um, you know, just what he's presented, uh, on that and just his, his own process. It took me a while to even recognize that he was from the West coast. He just didn't have the, the traditional, you know, I'm from the West coast, so that traditional West coast sound and whatever, but you know, the CD and he's from LA and everything like that. And, um, I'm excited about this new, uh, uh, I guess we can talk about this new reader that you are editing with, uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Driscoll and uh, Monica Miller and whatnot. Um, can you share a little bit of just about that uh, in terms of what the what that reader is going to look like? Well, we think that uh, Kendrick Lamar's work um, demands greater scholarly attention. That yeah. we ought to be interrogating it. Uh, and so this collection of essays is an effort to bring together scholars who are doing really interesting work journalists who are doing really interesting work to kind of look at his corpus, to kind of tease out the themes, kind of tease out his process and posture towards the world and analyze that. Yeah. So the essays are coming in. We hope that it will go to press by, uh, by summer. Great, man. That's great, man. Um, will it be ready for AAR this, uh, this year in Denver? I would hope so, but that might be a bit too optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I hear that. And Rutledge is the publisher, correct? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Doc Penn, uh, where can people find you at? Where uh, where can people uh, you know pay you that hundred thousand dollar honorarium to have you speak at their next? You can find me on my website, anthonypenn.com, or check me out on Twitter, Anthony underscore Penn. That's great. And I'll post all these in the show notes as well. Doc, this has been uh this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, sir. No, this has been this has been great. We're gonna get you back because um I'd love to talk more particularly about uh our race and as it you know can, pertains to religious pursuits and um and uh yes, yeah, yes. And I do what what's that? Anytime. Oh, yes. And I definitely want to just thank you, man, for your support. But I know you also support a lot of other folks, man. I'm always running into people who are like, man, Doc Penn, he's a supporter of mine. So thank you also on your support once again for, you know, as I pursued tenure, you wrote those letters, man. Thank you. I really appreciate that, brother. It was my pleasure. I try to support good work. And Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I hear that, man. Well, thank you so much. And we will definitely have you back on soon, Doc. Sounds good. Appreciate you. Hey y'all, how you doing out there? Guess what y'all? We are gonna be at the Wild Goose Festival this year. What's the Wild Goose Festival you ask? Well, there's a whole website, www.wildgoosefestival.org. We here at Profane Faith Podcast are really excited that we are doing a live recording this year at the Wild Goose Festival. It's going to be on Friday, July 13th, starting around 1 o'clock in the Goose Cast tent. And you can join the fun by being part of our audience. In fact, we can help you out on that. Just go to www.wildgoosefestival.org and use the promo code GOOSECAST18. And there's a little asterisk star next to it. Goose Cast 18 with a little asterisk star. When you buy your tickets and you'll receive a whopping 25% off, yo. 25% off. Yo, Wild Goose Festival this summer coming up. Profane Faith Podcast doing a live production. You could be in the audience. Get on over there. WildGooseFestival.org. Promo code GooseCast18. Be there.